For August 20th, 2012, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 216. Happy birthday, short round! Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Today, folks, we walk among the legends. The Overthinking It panel has all seen a movie for once, a movie with perhaps more – I'm not going to say pound for pound because there are a lot of pounds, but more sort of overall power <laughs> than perhaps any other movie ever made. Yes, we're in fact talking about The Expendables 2. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is your Expendables 2 podcast with an illustrious crew of never expendable. You know, you guys, you guys, I think I would hold on to you guys. I would save you guys. I'd bronze you. I don't think you're, you're expendable at all, but uh, <laughs> I think you're suitable for uh, discussing uh, the, uh, the day's topic. Yes? We're the opposite of the red shirts that are sent down in Star Trek. Exactly. You're the no shirts. It's uh, shirts and skins, right? <laughs> shirts and skins. <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're recyclable, not expendable. For the vanishingly small share of the population for which this matters, there will be spoilers to the Expendables 2 on this <laughs> So if you're itching to see the Expendables 2, you feel like knowing elements of the plot ahead of time will dampen your enjoyment of it, and you haven't gotten around to it yet, uh, put us on pause, head down to the movie theater, check it out, and come back. Awesome. But first... Uh, if there's one thing that this movie is about, uh, it certainly is about appetites. <laughs> and we all already have our appetite going for Expendables 3. So, panel, who's missing? What star, action star, 80s star, 90s star, do you bring in for Expendables 3? Who was not in Expendables 2? And Expendables 2, to review, had you know Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, Chuck Norris, uh, you know... The guy who's the ultimate fighting MMA guy who had like three lines in the whole thing. whole bunch of – oh, and also Gail from The Hunger Games. Andy Couture. Game, Andy Couture. Andy Couture, exactly. Randy Couture. All right. First in the alphabet, I gladly cede my seat to him for I am sure he will amaze us with his answer. Uh, Matthew Belinky, how are you doing? I'm doing just peachy. I'm not feeling expendable at all tonight. Um, I'm going to get the low-hanging fruit uh, out of the way and go with Mr. T. Uh, Mr. T, obviously well-known as Stallone's nemesis in Rocky III, much as Dolph Lundgren was his nemesis in Rocky IV. Uh, also, B.A. Baracus in the A-Team, of course. Of course, the, the thing is that I, I'm sure that like they would have already gotten Mr. T if it were at all possible. But Mr. T, um, off-screen, is actually one of the biggest pussycats, one of the biggest Boy Scouts ever to come out of Hollywood. Um, if you have not seen any on the internet, I urge you to Google Mr. T, Be Somebody or Be Somebody's Fool, a motivational video from 1984, uh, where Mr. T is basically sort of like a, a Mr. Rogers Neighborhood style video where he does like a series of motivational sketches about topics such as shyness, uh, dealing with frustration, uh, countering peer pressure, treating your mother right. And uh, it features um, – now I'm sort of cribbing from the Wikipedia page, but it features a showcase of emerging talent including Ice-T, uh, Bobby Brown, and uh, New Edition. 
um, and mm-hmm. really priceless. So basically, like Mr. T will not appear in the Expendables three in a million years because he doesn't approve of uh, gratuitous violence in movies, which is the reason <laughs> that you did not see him in the A Team movie, even though they they tried to get all the surviving members of the old A Team cast in there in a cameo appearance, uh, and like was very public about the fact that like the original TV show was like, much more of a cartoon, and he doesn't approve of all this people actually shooting other people with blood and whatnot. Um, but in a perfect world, uh, yeah, like I would see Mr. T pitying fools alongside all his other 80s greats. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I hear that. I feel that. Uh, Mark Lee, what you got going? Okay, I have three responses to this. I'm going to go through them in <laughs> rapid fire succession. Much whoa, as, whoa, whoa, whoa. As, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. I, you only get one. But, but, you know, in a movie this big, in, uh, <laughs> in, 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 in a movie with, uh, that features so many, uh, uh, you know, machine guns with endlessly repeating uh, fire with magazines that ca- hold so, many, so much capacity, um, I feel like I'm on low three in a rapid, quick succession. Okay. All um, right. This actual- is done under protest. Okay. The real <laughs> obvious answer, I'll go through them quick. The real obvious, uh, real obvious low-hanging fruit. Um, which just has to be stated, and I'll put it out there um, without much further comment, is Wesley Snipes, but he's in jail for tax evasion. Once he gets out, he's definitely in Expendables 3. The I other, think he's out uh, next year, though, right? Next year, yes. Okay, so moving through quickly. I said I said moving yeah. quickly. Rapid fire. Pop, 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 okay. pop, 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 Okay, <laughs> swinging the uh, other end of the... So talking about, you know, Expendables 3, you got to keep pushing the envelope. I'm going to push the envelope further in the B, C, D grade action star from the 90s. Casper Van Diem, I believe, deserves a turn on the, uh, return to the silver screen in huge blockbuster action movies. Okay, so on the other end of the spectrum, um, old age, definitely a creaky Clint Eastwood who's like barely walking uh, will hobble on onto the, onto the set uh, and, and proceed to blow people away with uh, impossible uh, 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 crankiness and oldness. It would be fantastic. I would watch that. So the rapid fire was what? Wesley Snipes and Clint Eastwood? Casper Van Diem. And Casper Van Dien, right. Okay, okay. I hear you. I hear you. I hear that. I I don't know. John, I feel like he left you a lot of room to pick some real titans. Who have you got (laughs) in the chamber here to unleash uh, from your auto shotgun out of the side of your smart car? All right, so apparently, since it's cool to list multiple entries for the first time ever in the history of this podcast, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm comfortable with all precedents being broken. I'm just not sure I'm comfortable with this being the podcast on which they're broken, like not some sort of, not some sort of round-numbered podcast, but all right, so I'm going to list three as well. So first off, joining the good guys, obviously we need legendary action hero Kurt Russell, you know, rounding out the team, possibly as a possibly as a as a recruiter or something along those lines. Uh, in the you know, adding to the level of villainy, we have several we have several options, including my '80s action favorite Rutger Hauer as the sort of neo-Nazi mastermind whose plot the the heroes have to uncover. But of course, the the ultimate '80s action movie cameo is going to be when these three, when the Expendables have to go in and rescue the president whose plane has been shot down. I'm talking, of course, about President Lance Henriksen. (laughs) (laughs) Refresh our memories. Lance Henriksen? Lance, Lance, Mark, why, why you of all people, I have to refresh his memory on who Lance Henriksen is. He was, I mean, his most famous role for you should be as one of the police detectives in The Terminator. Oh, yes, 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 Uh, yes, yes. 
he was also in Aliens. He was also in one of those one of those John Woo movies that was filmed in America with Jean Claude Van Damme. I can't remember the name of it. He was also in '90s horror movie Pumpkinhead. He's he's all Lance Henriksen. Lance Henriksen. He's also <laughs> he's also seventy two years old, which definitely qualifies him for membership. Is he seventy two years old? Oh my god! Yeah, this Lance, Lance Henriksen. Oh, okay. Is. <laughs> this is what happens when you steal mine, Lee. God, die, die, die. All, all right, all right, all right. I'll, I'll toss mine in there because this is where I thought you were going, John. I was starting to get a little scared that you were going to take mine because I feel like the only thing, the only way that you can go other than making one with all women, which I've heard they are maybe doing, and maybe people can fill us in on that uh, later, but uh, would be just to go even bigger. If is there anybody that you can get from that era who is in fact a bigger movie presence? of the similar sort to these guys. Uh, and I imagine that one way that you could meet him would be if he were the president and his plane were to be shot down and we would have to uh, perhaps get <laughs> off of it at some point. Uh, so that it didn't... Uh, but I'm imagining more uh, kind of a, a, a sort of ancient like Khmer tomb, right, uh, with, with sort of creaking levers and cobwebs and, and all of a sudden a bunch of armor personnel carriers show up at it and just start shelling it with mortars and rocket launchers until the front wall falls down, uh, revealing, of course, Harrison Ford uh, holding some sort of relic and then uh, whipping away the nozzle of a tank with his whip as he kind of grimaces and grunts and runs by, and they chase him down the street. Because uh, he's, he's in The Expendables as a presence, right? Like, he's not in it, obviously. His face isn't in it. He's never mentioned. But there's a couple scenes where they sort of talk about Indiana Jones, right? There's the sort of uh, the one where... Um, uh, uh, Jason Statham says you can you, you never can beat a classic. After he punches the guy into the heli- into the helicopter, the rotor blade for the plane, mm-hmm. right? Which is yeah. of course a reference to some Indiana Jones action. Uh, and I mean, of course, I don't know if you guys hoped, but we uh, we certainly hoped in Boston that when they went down into the mine, it was going to be worked by a bunch of like Mongolian children who were going right. to have to be released. <laughs> yeah, like short round was going to be down there. Oh, if Short Round was in it? Oh, man, that would be awesome. Yeah. Let me ask you this. The kid who plays Short Round is probably, what, is like mid to late 30s now? Probably. I mean, we That can... kid could be like the new sort of rookie on The Expendables. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Jonathan K. Kwan is his name. Uh, he is, in fact, 41... Uh, oh God! Please don't <laughs> let that be true. <laughs> it is, in fact. Oh, actually, when is his birthday? No! Oh, my God! Guys... But the day that you are listening to this podcast, Monday, August 20th, is Short Round's birthday. (laughs) (laughs) So can we just give a huge shout out? Happy birthday to Jonathan K. Kwan of Saigon, Vietnam. (laughs) There is time for love, Jonathan K. Kwan. (laughs) I know you haven't made anything in 10 years. And only one thing in the last 20 years. Uh, I don't know. Okay, that's all you need to do in your life. This is, he's, he accomplished more by 10 than most of us do all day. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> oh, wow, that's amazing. Uh, Steven Seagal didn't make anybody's list. I was surprised. No Steven Seagal? Nobody wants to see some slow running and like Aikido uh, in the next one? <laughs> I, I, guess, I, guess not. I can't even keep a straight face. <laughs> no, that I'm not even on camera, but I still – I'm just going to let people know that I'm not keeping a straight face. He did have an Expendables-like turn in uh, Machete, 
right? Right. In a similar ensemble all-star cast of actors. I was, I was I was speculating about this with Sylvia because Machete is having a sequel coming out, I believe, either next summer or or, or later on. And if you remember, at the time that Harry, the Harry Potter movies and the Lord of the Rings movies were filming, those two movies occupied, I think, just about every British actor of note. So I think with this Machete sequel and Expendables 3 or Expendables 2 filming at the same time, we're going to see a similar thing. Like every action star from the 80s is going to be in one movie or the other. Like that will employ them for the rest of time. <laughs> and, to- and Tom Cruise is just going to keep making new ones. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like Tom, what, Tom Cruise. Or are we going to talk about the trailer, the uh, the Jack Reacher trailer? Oh, oh, that one. Yeah, we could talk. This was a. I don't know if you guys saw the same parade of trailers we saw, but nearly every movie starred someone who was in that sort of fifty to sixty-five bracket, right? It was amazing. <laughs> and one we of have, them was we have a dearth of sort of young action stars with sort of credibility. Um, I think the movie represented that symbolically with the with the death of Gale from the Hunger Games, right? Yeah. When they these yeah, like, oh, true. lost him and he's been replaced by this lady and we don't know how to deal with it. They don't <laughs> make him like this. this whole summer to me, the big theme of the summer is that like Taylor Kitsch will never be an action star. <laughs> despite how much we want him to because of because of the failure of both Battleship and uh and uh, uh John Carter and right. to a lesser extent the new uh uh, the new uh, um, what is it? Uh, the stupid um, you, you know the 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 stupid movie with the the guy the drug dealers and the threesome and the <laughs> what are you even talking about? Know what it is? <laughs> serious. A, a movie with drug dealers and a threesome. I picked uh, the wrong time to get into block. <laughs> okay, well, why don't you tell us about the Jack Reacher trailer, John? No, I'm I'm talking about the new Oliver Stone yeah, movie okay. Savages, which literally oh. is about a threesome. Right, it's yeah. about the drug trade, right? Or yeah, okay, yeah. but a threesome is also part of it. I, Sorry, guys. Well, yeah, no, that, that's fine. I, I knew the one it was. I just wanted to let you you dog paddle. Like dangle in the wind, yeah. there. Thanks. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Jack Reacher. So this is actually this actually crossed my radar several months ago because. The Jack Reacher character is the protagonist of a very successful series of thriller novels by British author Lee Child. Jack Reacher is a, in the novels, is a former military policeman who just sort of drifts across America, uh, pretty much randomly finding trouble, a la Lorenzo Lamas in Renegade. And, you know, through his use of his detection skills as a former MP and his just physical prowess, busts some heads, breaks up some criminal organizations and, you know, saves the day through through violence and, and sex and action. Now, the, the uh, this movie in particular, this movie called Jack Reacher, is is adapted from one particular Lee Child novel, uh, the novel being called One Shot. And it's a pretty good one. Two interesting things about the movie that, that need to be commented on. First, the villain, the villain, not the director of the movie, the villain is being played by Werner Herzog. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's bold casting. <laughs> yeah, is, does he is. have a bunch of bears with him? Is that how it works? <laughs> uh, given, given the subject matter, he might. I would not be surprised. Mm-hmm. Be shocked. Mm-hmm. The second interesting bit, and this is, and this was a point of contention amongst Jack Reacher fans for for several weeks, and you can still find debates about it on the internet if you know where to look. Is that in the novels, Jack Reacher is being is described as being six foot four and two hundred and fifty pounds. 
And that those those are the last two words you would use or the last two phrases you would use to describe Tom Cruise, who is <laughs> not, who is not even six feet and wouldn't be 250 pounds if he picked up Surrey in, in one hand. So. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 yeah, that, that, it was, it was an interesting right? bit of casting. And the suspicion, of course, is that, you know, the, the novels have been film optioned for years at this point, And. Tom Cruise owning his own production company, you know, is probably the one who optioned them. And, you know, if he expresses interest in the role, that's, well, it's going to him. They're not going to wait around for Clancy Brown to get off of whatever TV series he's doing on Lifetime or wherever he is now. So, yeah, and I mean, just watching the trailer, he does present an interesting sort of weird, intense physicality, but he's obviously not a huge bear of a man. Although I, th- I think from the from the Mission Impossible movies, he's a credible action you know protagonist as far as I'm. Concerned. Oh yeah, no no doubt about that. No doubt about that. I'm yeah. I'm interested to see it just because I'm always fascinated to watch Tom Cruise on screen, just because he's always got that weird sort of psychotic intensity to him. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. He could be in the next Expendable. I mean, he won't be, but he could be in the next Expendable. <laughs> He'll have the time. I mean, you know, he, he can join that whole crowd of guys who like women can't stand to be around, which appears to be one of the major themes of this movie. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you a question, Parrish, because I know you are a connoisseur as well as an author of, uh, of thrillers. Is it important to the novels that uh, the Reacher character is a very large, physically imposing man? Or is that merely like, is what's important that he's very good at beating people up? I, I would say, as, as a connoisseur, I would say more the latter than the former. And given, right. the, given the brief snatch of a fight scene that we see in the trailer, Tom Cruise is more than capable of pulling that off. Like, he's All capable right. of fighting with brutal, direct physicality, which is, which is the Reacher hallmark. The other thing being a sort of Jack Bauer slash Sherlock Holmes capacity for deduction. So I, I think between those two, Cruise, Tom Cruise will be an interesting choice. I mean, everyone, in, everyone else in the movie, I believe, is a little person, and they film with the camera about four inches off the ground shooting up the whole time, right? Well, they, they, constructed, <laughs> they constructed the whole town in seven-eighth scale like John Ford did for Rio Bravo. Just so, you know, just so everyone, just so Tom Cruise looks larger than life and everyone else looks. No, I'm, I'm, that's a lie. Don't trust me on that. <laughs> I mean, and before we, one more thing before we get into the actual movie, because there's a lot to talk about about the Expendables. But what's up with The Last Stand, people? What is up with The Last Stand? <laughs> Did you guys see this trailer for your yeah. movie? Oh, yeah, your yeah, 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 yeah. I know we saw it in Boston. I'm the sheriff. Like, <laughs> he doesn't even say it like that. It's like, I'm the sheriff. I'm the sheriff. <laughs> Pete, are, I you, Pete did, are you saying it's implausible that an Austrian immigrant can become the sheriff of a small press, town right. of, uh, I mean, in Arizona? Arizona um, is not pre- very kind to immigrants, I believe. So I don't know if they would be nice to Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> um, I, I, that's where I commented when I saw it. I was like, what a bold choice. Arizona with an immigrant is a sheriff. Um, but yeah, no, no. I, I hope that it's not some sort of like, you know, know nothing or uh, kind of nativist piece, except with a German guy standing in for like other kind of white guy. Um, but he definitely looked like he was jumping away from explosions. That's for sure. Uh, that certainly was happening in that movie. But yeah, seeing Arnold back on the big screen as a sort of cranky grandfatherly figure. I do have to say, though, the work he's had done on his face doesn't really favor him, especially in the action. Yeah. Like, there are several scenes where he's walking towards the camera firing a shotgun, and the surprise look on his face 
is, I would imagine, almost the exact same look I would picture on my grandfather's face if he were walking toward a camera firing a shotgun. Like that sort of, what's going on? I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> I hope it's sort of like a, what was that? Is that a, was that Serve and Protect? What was that, that Seth Rogen movie, right? Or was it Paul Blart Mall Cop? The one where they sort of like, there's a couple yeah. movies where the guys kind of go a little bit insane and they start murdering people, right? Observe they, and Report, I believe. Observe and Report was the movie that I'm thinking about. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, here's the, here's the thing about the, the, the Last Stand is that like, you know, as a, as a leading man and an action star gets older, there are many routes you could take, right? You can sort of like uh, tailor the roles to your to your increasing age. I'd say like Clint Eastwood is a good model for that. You take on like increasingly sophisticated roles, age-appropriate roles. You can sort of withdraw entirely from cinema like Harrison Ford, right? Like mm-hmm. if you can't be the sort of rugged, uh, attractive leading man, you're not going to try to make movies at all. Um, whereas like Arnold Schwarzenegger is just going to like rage against the dying of the light, right? He's going to make the same movie he could have made at like age 40. Right, um, right, right. You know, until it's just like impossible to like pass off a stud double as like 65 year old Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, there is the Tom Cruise approach, which is still working for him because he's only 50. Right, which is to uh, good lord, <laughs> which which is like you know use every uh, notion of modern science available, every ounce of help that you can get to try to maintain kind of a youthful appearance. But I think as we see from uh, well, Bruce Willis, I think is a good example of this. This doesn't really work for the really big guys. Nearly, you know, the little guys can kind of littler guys even can kind of pull it off and yeah. can kind of age gracefully. But if you're like a huge hulking brute of a man, you're gonna look like a big grandfatherly guy. Like Wait, you can't have the same muscle mass as you used to. Yeah, and your skin was so big when you were so big, and so it's gonna yeah. relax more. Um, but yeah, so okay, so so we've we've talked about the lead in. The trailers were really exciting. I know I was excited for it the whole time. The Expendables too. Uh, I mean. We, I know we don't like to do reviews, but I mean, much much better than Expendables One, people. I mean, yeah. is that yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I left that hurdle Absolutely. like it was exactly. I, I would call it instead of Expendables Two, just Expendables Two Point Oh. Whereas yeah, that, like, yeah. you don't feel like it's a continuation of the story, but like you know, a refinement of the of the uh, the thesis, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know the, the first. Thought that I would have in how to describe it is in the first Expendables they spent you a lot spent a lot of time trying to tell you why you should care about these people right like these are these are the people these are their lives this is what they do this is where they've been let's look at them let's look at everything they've been through let's figure out why we care about them and this second movie assumes that we already care about them right gives us very little reason from the get go to really care about these people but assumes that they matter to us greatly and just plunges forward and just has them do the things that they do and show us through their actions and through the things that they do what their characters are like rather than kind of you know meditate on them and i felt in that way it felt fresh it felt it felt like something that was generative let me sum up the difference between expendables 2 and expendables 1 in this way Uh, expendables 1 had an oddly intense and emotional speech by mickey rourke about like which is a great scene So in the Which second like, one, you have neither Mickey work nor do you have uh, that sort of level of, of taking itself seriously. Uh, and that's what I think was the main strength of Expendables 2, is that it uh, became comfortable in the level of camp that it was going after, and it executed that level of camp uh, appropriately. Uh, in the scene that I think was, was most embodied, um, when it, they're uh, totally cleaning house in the Ukrainian village, and then one guy rounds the corner and is proceeded to be blown away by four guys. <laughs> <laughs> Utterly gratuitous fashion, after which Sylvester Sloan's rest in pieces. 
Which I, I assume also is a, is a reference to um, the, uh, the uh, I, I, we come in peace and you go in pieces line from that terrible Dolph Lundgren movie. Yeah, but but that line was ironic even then, right? So yeah, definitely. It's yeah. Uh, I'm sure yeah. that there it's been used before too. But that was pretty funny when they just all opened fire with machine guns on this one <laughs> poor guy who just like reeled backwards. Like um, there's a lot of physical comedy by the people who are being murdered in this movie. Uh, that was one of the because it's, it's a really funny movie, but it's extremely violent. Yeah. Right. Like, um, I mean, physical comedy is a good way to put it. There are a lot of people who get picked up uh, and thrown into things or kicked into things or dislodged by explosions and bounce off of things while falling. And <laughs> yeah, and it, it's it's funny, but it's not lingered on. It's just a quick, you know, laughing reaction and then and then back on to the and then back on the rest of the action. Yeah, even when the guy's heads are exploded by the high-caliber sniper rifle by Gale from The Hunger Games, right? That's like That got, like, gasps, you know, and sort of, like, bemusement from the audience because it was so over the top. They were just assaulting you with it, you know, like yeah. assault weapon. So to your, yeah. your point, Fenzel, about uh, not trying to identify too much with the characters, I, I think that's because, and we saw this to an extent in the first Expendables, but much more so here, the characters aren't meant to be that distinct from the actors playing them. On an on an almost Brechtian level, like I mean, when <laughs> when, Ch- when Chuck Norris's character shows up, you're not meant to think of him as Booker, which is a character's name. You think, oh, this is Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris showed up and he saved the day because he's Chuck Norris. And there there is a throwaway line in his about you know being bit by King Cobra, which is obviously a reference to the list of Chuck Norris facts that circulated the internet. And at no point are you meant to think of this guy as anything other than Chuck Norris. When yeah. Arnold Ch- Arnold Schwarzenegger's character's name is Trench, but you're not meant to think of him like that. You're meant to think of him as Arnold Schwarzenegger, and and so on and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah. well, this, this is most embodied by the Dolph Lundgren character, and yeah, him taking that's... on the, his actual backstory of being what a former MIT astrophysicist, yeah. not uh, a chemical engineer, chemical, chemical engineer. engineer. Yeah, I yeah. yeah. To, to recount Dolph Lundgren's biography because he is an amazing man. Uh, <laughs> I'm once again looking at his Wikipedia page. So he, he got a graduate degree from Washington State University. Uh, then he, he sorry, um, um, it's amazing. So master's degree, uh, from the university of Sydney in chemical engineering. Um, then he got a Fulbright scholarship to MIT. And then while he was preparing to move to Boston, he was spotted and as working as a nightclub, uh, in Sydney, Australia, uh, while he was getting ready to take out his Fulbright and was hired by Grace Jones as a bodyguard. And, uh, from there he fell in love with Grace Jones and they had a relationship and moved to New York city and became a famous actor. Uh, which is awesome. Yeah, I mean, if you don't remember Grace Jones, she's the very severe female African African American, or is she not from America? I don't remember whether she's from the United States or not. But black, uh, act, like action actress who had that sort of severe flat top fade and was in Conan the Destroyer, right? Like uh, she's she's she was an amazing presence on there screen. You go. Back she she could be she could be a villain in Expendables three. Or even, or even a fellow action hero, and she and Dolph Lundgren could have a brief scene where they run on screen together, look at each other, and then just sort of like awkwardly step aside and pretend they didn't see each other, and just yeah. like yeah. like like oh, oh hey how you yeah, how, how have you been <laughs> like good <laughs> yeah that's my favorite Dolph Lundgren story, which is apparently absolutely true, which is that at one point uh, Dolph Lundgren's uh, wife. Uh, she was home and robbers broke into his house and like tied her up and were going to kidnap her and then looked at family photos in his living room and realized it was Dolph Lundgren's house and untied her and left and abandoned the mission. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. You could Google yeah. this. This is absolutely fact. 
I, and I mean, going going back to the movie, it, it's amazing that they just give the story, the real life story of Dolph Lundgren to the Dolph Lundgren character and associate his presence in whatever bar they're in, right, when they're talking about it, to the action movie career that he ended up having, right, which is sort of like heavy hearted. They're sort of like, well, this is what happened to you after you did all that stuff. And when, when he, he writes uh, Einstein's theory of relativity on a napkin and blows his nose on it to sort of mm-hmm. signify how his like life's work has been in disrespect to the amazing promise of his youth. <laughs> right, like, uh, <laughs> and he's just sort of like, "Well, there you go." And there's a bunch of old men who are like looking at their pasts, and they're like, "Well, let's blow our noses on it. Let's let it go." Although he does reclaim it, right? That's his character arc: is he reclaims his uh, his past glory as a chemical engineer when he fails to blow up the phosphorus <laughs> rock on the side is, of the. Is that how you interpret that sequence? <laughs> I think that's what's supposed then, to be. And, and then, then I of love course, Arnold Schwarzenegger rides in in the Total Recall digging apparatus. <laughs> that's right that's right that's where i've seen something like that before it looks just like the one in total recall yeah <laughs> oh man so, and so I, you know why does, dolph, why does dolph lundgren get his real life lampshade into his character i mean jason statham is a former not not olympic diver but like olympic class diver he was a professional athletic diver uh he was a former male model he used to sell stolen goods on the street, like on the black market, like his character does in the movie Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. And so he had an inter- interesting past. Is that supposed to be the past of his oh. of his character in The Expendables as well? He was he finished 12th in the Diving World Championships of 1992, which is supposed to show how old he actually is. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that the Dolph Lundgren backstory is so extreme – Right, and sort of so surprising. Even it still makes me laugh, even after I first found out about it, like you know, fifteen years ago or whatever. Um, that that I think I don't, I don't think we're supposed to understand that everybody is carrying their own backstory. It's it's really a break in the reality of the movie, right? Where they're like, Dolph Lundgren has this backstory. Also, Gunner as a character. You're, you're right. You're right. That's what broke the reality of the movie. <laughs> a lot of things. Obviously, a lot of things. I'll be back. No, you always get to be back. I'll be back this time. <laughs> Yippee Kaye. <Yeah. laughs> right? Who's, who's next, Rambo? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Can I, can I also say before we move on that the only action star that competes with Dolph Lundgren for like a ridiculous true life story is uh, Chris Christopherson, which does anybody know his true life story? Well, he was a writer. He's a musician, yeah. No, no, Chris Christopherson is a Rhodes Scholar, my friends. <laughs> Chris Christopherson began writing country music while at Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship. <laughs> now, this, of course, is Whistler from the Blade series for those yeah. who are younger but not that much younger um, and have seen, thus yeah. seen the Blade series. This is, I mean, it's, it's even better than this. Is like after his Rhodes Scholarship, he like joins the army, like achieves the rank of captain, becomes a helicopter pilot, and then like rises to, to fame after like delivering his demo uh, personally to uh, Willie Nelson by landing a helicopter on his front lawn. <laughs> wow, that's intense. That's really intense. Yeah, anyway. Oh, so we should stay on task because we actually saw the movie this time. So we should uh, – I mean although we have been talking about it. Uh, I mean I guess w- what does it say, right? Like what, what is the movie – what does it say that all of these references and, and real-life things – I mean is it just a matter of getting laughs and, and a recognition for these old things with these sort of callback jokes? Or is there something more that is going on here 
with introducing these, you know, references to these actors, keeping the characters as they exist independently from the public persona of the actors kind of thin. Um, like, what's happening here? Well, I, I, just to start things off here, I don't have a, a, a great uh, answer to the question of what's happening here, but uh, I can at least say this, that what we see with the, by the fact that Expendables and Expendables 2 exist, it is a, it is a uh, resounding uh, testament to the strength of the body of work, pun intended, uh, that uh, of the 80s and 90s action movies, such that you can throw uh, a movie at it and have something bounce back at you and have it be recognizable as an, as an, as an entertainment product. Um, can you imagine somebody, let's just have a hypothetical person who is, who is fluent in the English language and can understand all of the words and can take and you know has perfect vision and hearing and can take in all the sensory input coming off that screen, but has never seen an eighties or nineties action movie and doesn't understand any of the references. The movie is completely lost upon that yeah. person, right? I mean, this is just like an entire separate class of cinema uh, than for something like I don't know Shawshank Redemption, for example, where I don't believe you have to have a deep knowledge of of, of movies to understand any references that that movie is making, right? I mean, th- so like the fact that like. This movie exists and is resonant to so many people. Uh, that says something about uh, the power of, of, of that genre of, of movie that this that this is a part of the legacy of. Yeah, and I think it also says something about the way that the people who are sort of making and marketing and conceiving of movies are thinking about the relationships between the movies and the audiences that are seeing them. Right? I think that there's a lot of kind of social media all over this movie. This idea that that. Um, you know, we had so we had movies as just to sort of paint a mini narrative, right? You have movies as the sort of dominant sequential visual art narrative form, right? And then you have TV shows come in and kind of displace them, right? And they sort of decline. And then you have stuff like I like to clock it with like the Towering Inferno, right? That sort of comes in and says like, no, uh, you know, you're going to watch these movies because they're going to be huge events, right? They're going to be you know amazing things and they're going to be spectacles and you're going to want to be there to see them for to. Uh, and then you have this sort of uh, you know. TV kind of gets in the arms race and catches up and the internet gets in the arms race and catches up and then what everyone sort of expected to have happen was that you know cheap available web entertainment would push tv and movies out of the way but what's really happened is people love big movies and big tv shows more than ever now because they talk about them with each other right and and also because the people who are in the studios this translates in Business-wise, because the people in the studios can look at metrics that track the ways in which people are talking about their movies, right? And they can use that as justification for making the movies. So you're seeing the sort of shift from the movie as an event in terms of being an experience, right? Sort of like a thing that's being projected from us to you, right? Something a party that we're throwing to something that people are doing together. I think, and I think that's one of the marks on why the Expendables can just be so referential. But I think uh, one one other thing that you said, one thing you said, Mark, I want to I want to don't want to get away too far away from, is that um, there's a line at the end of the movie where they say, "Well, this should be in a museum," and Arnold says, "We all should." Right, 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 right. right, right. And I feel like that really gives you a window into the movie because there's a lot that the movie does that's very unapologetically almost trying to explain how things work in this body of work. Right? Like, like the scene that, that strikes me, and maybe you guys have some opinions on this scene too, is when they come across the small village and all the women are holding guns and none of them know how to shoot them. And they're all kind of like, they're strong, but they're kind of scared and they need these men to come save them, right? Um, 
you could see this as just sexism, but that seems a little bit strange given the time in which this movie is being made. It really seems like this is the kind of scene that you would have seen in an 80s or 90s action movie. And it's being preserved here almost as a museum piece, right? Like we're, we're considering the body of work and we're showing you the body of work and we're paying tribute to the body of work, not necessarily without judgment. Like there is judgment levied against it. It's like, well, we're all getting old and this is kind of outdated and silly. But um, I mean I've been wrestling a lot with what to do or think about the parts of the movie that are objectionable to our contemporary sensibilities. And I feel like thinking of it as a kind of um, museum piece on that body of work helps create a certain amount of distance Fenzel, you know I mean? I'll, back, I'll back you up on that, especially if you take a look at the movie poster, or at least the one that's captured on IMDb. So if you go to the IMDb page for Expendables 2 and look at the movie poster there, it's very much a classic 80s action movie poster. Like, here's the cast, all of them sprayed on the, fi- all of them sprayed on the front of the image, all shooting in various directions. You've got three tiers of interaction. Stuff is flying from back perspective out towards the viewer at an oblique angle. There's explosions and a different scene entirely buried in the in the extreme foreground of the poster. Just just an immense visual mess that that mm-hmm. signifies every single thing that happens in the movie. This is yeah. I, I'd almost, I, I almost want to say it's and just bl- completely blank, completely up to my head. I would bet you this is copied from Rambo three, at least in yeah. important visual motifs. Yeah, I was actually I was actually thinking that while you were talking, and I was looking up Rambo two and Rambo three because I feel like it's it's pulled the visual style, not the not the saturation of it with all of the different elements. That's more of kind of a Star Wars thing, but definitely the font, right, and the way the color is worked, and the kind of the way that the people are positioned. It definitely feels like a, a Rambo Rambo two Rambo three poster, um, yeah. like really specifically, uh, which I thought was kind of an interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, Pete, to, to talk about how the movie feels about itself, we got to talk about Liam Helmsworth, who is obviously the youngest in the cast by about 20 years, right? If you don't count the, the woman who plays a different role in the movie than, than all the men do. Uh, Liam Helmsworth, of course, outside of this movie, uh, known for uh, being in The Hunger Games, which is, of course, sort of like – I don't know if I'd call The Hunger Games an action movie, but it's sort of like a new big you know, uh, it's a Hollywood franchise. franchise. Yeah, and also known for being engaged to my – Cyrus, I would say. <laughs> um, so that, like, you know, sort of, sort of the new hotness. Um, and it was interesting that I, I did read that also considered for this role was Tyler Lautner, uh, the the werewolf from uh, f- right. from the Twilight. T- movie. It's, t- it's Hemsworth right. and Taylor Lautner. Not yes. Helmsworth, Tyler Lautner, but yeah, continue. Sorry about that. Oh, no, it's um, okay. All of our teenage, all of our like 12,000 teenage girl fans on Facebook are going to have a problem. No, they, they, they blur together. So yeah. like what, what we learn about him in the movie, it's established he's great at what he does. Like Stallone is very impressed by him. And there's one scene early on that shows him like running up a hill at great speed. And everyone marvels at the fact that like, wow, we can't even do this. But it also shows him then getting caught in a way that you can't imagine any other member of the cast getting caught. That he just sort of wanders into like an She's like, sorry, guys, they caught me. Uh, and then is, is promptly killed off. And so it's, it's sort of like the movie, sort of like responding to your question about what would somebody who didn't know any of the 80s action movies think about this movie. It's sort of trying to make a case about the fact that like these old warriors, these sort of like veteran guys that maybe can't run up the hill so fast are still like better in a pinch because like they have like been through this so many times before that like it's, it's blasé to them. Yeah, it, it, it's on a meta level. It's it's asking it's asking a couple of questions. Like one, are youth and athleticism enough to save you from imminent danger? And two, on a very meta level, 
is there is the new generation of action stars going to re- displace the old generation of action stars in terms of ability to save the day and command an audience? And this movie's answer to both those questions is hell no. No, no, no. Yeah. I, th- I think they're saying that the action movies are going to be over, right? They're like that. This is sort of a thing that's going to kind of get sealed up and put into a tomb when it's done. <laughs> and we're going to have new kinds of movies. I, I also really liked. Not liked, because I don't think you can like this sort of thing. But um, I thought it was interesting, the the monologue about Iraq, about Afghanistan, rather. They're in Afghanistan, and they I think they get killed by friendly fire, right? Like his whole squad gets killed by friendly fire in a battle with the Taliban where the, the Apache helicopter comes in or what have you. Uh, I don't want to yeah. get into the feasibility it's of It's maybe a little there. nebulous, but it's, it's strangely long considering the fact that his character doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah, and there's there, – I feel like there's a sense among the older guys of sort of sadness that this happened to this younger generation, right? That like these guys had to go out to these faraway places and they had to die, right? In the, in, in, and that's sort of what happens to Helmsworth too. He like dies alone far from home, right? Like it's, it's a different – it's not like the Cold War where you're kind of muscling up. Right, like it's not. I mean, I guess they had, you know, they had Vietnam, of course. But I mean, famously, this whole thing starts with sort of the repudiation of Vietnam, right? Like, like it's sort of a, um, it's sort of a way of kind of getting over the Vietnam guilt is the sort of do we get to win this time, right? Uh, yeah. Fantasy, right? Although also, I guess mission uh, accomplished. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, but I think the other the other line that's really telling in this movie, and I'm trying to remember exactly how it's said. Maybe you guys can help me out. But when they're right before uh, Billy eats it, <laughs> right before they, and I, in, in an underappreciated comic moment where Jean Claude Van Damme like roundhouse kicks the knife into his chest, totally unnecessarily. <laughs> <laughs> and I love uh, that he hands the knife to somebody to hold while he does that, as if it happens all the time. And they've sort yeah, of yeah, it's a very wordless gesture. Like he throws the knife to him, and the guy instinctively reverses the knife hilt out. Like, oh, hang on, this is going to be cool. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he basically he says, uh, "How does this, is there? No, it's not listed in memorable quotes on IMDb yet." He he says, uh, "Respect." He talks about respect, and he sort of says, "Well, what are we without respect? We're just a bunch of terrible people, right? Or something like that, right? Like uh, either unimportant or or sheep, yeah. sheep." Well, yeah, exactly. But he even he even says like something about being insufficient people, and and when I think about. The scene in the airport at the end of the movie where rather than going through the door or even attempt to, att- to achieve some sort of you know, um, egress or into this space, uh, <laughs> Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, and, and Sylvester Stallone just blow away the glass window with their machine guns and, and just fire their machine guns into a crowded airport and sort of march forward in this sort of huge – it was almost like they were battling them with their reputations, right? It's like yeah. – they, people, they had plot armor on big time. <laughs> it's, the thing is that it was never really about them being physically strong. I mean, that's sort of an aesthetic no. thing. But what or it's tactically really, superior. There, there was no plan to outsmart the bad guys, right? No, exactly. You go in in the giant armor personnel carrier, and you just blow down the wall, and you kill everyone. Yeah, that, that, scene, that scene begins with the, the dozen of them at that point standing on a lawn, waiting for the trucks to come, more or less an open field with no cover, and then once the trucks arrive, shooting at them all at once. Like, it that's, works. That's the plan. <laughs> yes, of course it works. Like it, it, one of the one of the core conceits of well, eighties action movies and these sort of action movies in particular is that characters never need to, or the heroes anyway, never need to really take cover. I mean, they they walk straight forward, shooting whatever automatic weapon they have, and when they take cover, it's only for the purposes of 
reminiscing or just complaining to the guy next to them about how about how drastic the situation is recognizing that oh things are pretty serious like oh let's have a brief exchange okay we've had that exchange now we can stand up from cover and continue firing it's there's never a sense of or there's never a real sense of oh i need to take cover because i'm in real serious danger yeah i think my favorite example of a scene like this is the convenience store shootout in cobra have you ever seen the Sylvester Stallone movie Cobra? Well, Years he, ago. He, yeah. He has like a he's like a he's like a bouffant coif or something. And he's got these like sunglasses, right? He's got a little mustache. And it's like every he takes cover a lot in that movie because he has to look brooding, right? Because like Cobra's kind of a brooding, cool hero. He's not a big <laughs> talker. Um, and so like, but he he comes in and out of cover, sort of uh standing straight up and down with like perfect posture, right? And he like jumps out and puts his gun out, almost like he's in Charlie's Angels, right? Um, but it's just he never really seems to be in fear for being hit by things. He just wants to hide briefly so that you can get a shot from behind. <laughs> Can I talk a little more about Jean-Claude Van Damme's character? Because when oh, yeah. we first meet him... Villain. Well, that's the point. When we first meet him, he has this great villainous speech about symbolism. And he says, like, oh, you know, like, you see this tattoo on my neck. It is a symbol. <laughs> and at first I thought that was a reference... <laughs> I seriously thought this was a reference to the 19th century French poet Paul-Marie Verlaine, who was, you know, very... <laughs> In the symbolist movement of, of French poetry. But reading, I just now discovered on IMDb that his name is not Verlaine, but Villaine, as in <laughs> villain minus one L. Yes. <laughs> and and <laughs> we've commented in the first po- Expendables podcast about the ridiculousness of some of these people's names, like Terry Crews' character, Hale Caesar, Jet Li's character, Yin Yang. Randy Couture's character, Toll Road, etc. <laughs> but I, I, think, yeah. I think I think naming the villain Villain really just takes it takes it one step further. Like I said, a Brechtian level of of disconnect. <laughs> it's it's priceless. I love it. Uh, it. There are some. There are a bunch of movies that do a similar thing, but act as if it's this really sort of grim, sad thing to do, right? Like sort of Nada from. Uh, from They Live or, or the Ed Norton character from Fight Club where like they don't even get names because they're not real people, right? But they just play archetypes, right? But at the same time, in, in movies like this, it's like, no, we don't even want to bother giving them real names uh, because they're not real people. They're just archetypes. Uh, it's interesting that to some people, this is like dehumanizing and to other people, it's light, right? It's, it's part of recognizing that these are repeated patterns that happen over and over again and this is not something that is only happening once this one time right in this story and also it's not real right like which is kind of important um yeah he was amazing in that role jean-claude van damme oh yeah here's something else to talk yeah. about with jean-claude van damme blink and i were talking about this after seeing the movie in that um one of uh van damme's recent uh movies was the uh sort of pseudo documentary jcvd right which i mm-hmm. haven't seen but apparently is all about the uh, sad impotence of an action star and you know, he's put in a real life dangerous situation and actually can't do anything about it. Yeah, right? I saw it. That's what it's about. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we have that and this is like sort of a, um, is, this is about as far from that sort of movie as you can get. Right. Or is it? 
Well, I mean, JCVD, you know, it takes that this huge left turn where he actually does save the day by being oh, an actual yeah. action star, right? Like the whole movie, it's it's a very ironic movie where you know they cut to him. And they start out with him. I think he started. He's in a bank, right? And there's like a bank robbery or something that's going down. Something similar to that, like a store or a bank. And then you flash back and you see all the things that have happened to him as a celebrity has ebbed, and all these people who really believe in him, but he sort of is kind of pathetic. And you see the movies he's making in like you know Indonesia and Thailand to pay the bills, uh, and um, and then you get to this point where he he actually stops the movie and he delivers a very long monologue in French toward the camera, sort of about the past purpose of his life and like who he is. And at this point, there's kind of a switch that gets flipped in the movie, and he actually just kicks everyone's ass. Wow! Right? Like it's actually it's actually kind of a slow, boring movie, and it's kind of the way that it ends is not kind of rah rah rah, but but almost kind of it feels a little bit empty. Um, because I mean it's French. What are you gonna do? But um. Not that they're all like that, but that it's a serious movie and it has a certain ennui to it. Um, but yeah, no, it's it is pretty far away from JCVD, but it's also pretty close to JCVD uh, because you know it's Jean Claude Van Damme kind of looking at his past career, right? Kind of recognizing things about it that he doesn't like, or things about himself that he doesn't like, or showing a dark side of himself, right? Like sort of showing that he's yeah. not this necessarily this heroic character you've always seen. Yeah. Um, I don't little, know. Like, do you ever see Funny People with uh, Adam Sandler being sort of a self mocking Adam Sandler? Uh, no, no, no. Was that it's, good? It's, good. You, you, it's actually. It, I mean, it's 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 got some Judd Apatow indulgences, but like you know, the the central plot is about a, a Adam Sandler playing a, a thinly veiled version of himself, like a, a stand up who went on to do like a bunch of sort of family comedies, which is sort of implied that he's not really proud of, and he did for the money. Uh, sort of like dealing with the with the the idea of like you know what he's become, and is he proud of his work? Um, and it's it's it, it strikes me as similar to that sort of thing where he's sort of like. Displays this like self-loathing, and you have to wonder: it's like, is that real self-loathing, or is it self-loathing for the sake of this particular movie? Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I think I mean Sylvester Stallone says in Expendables too, right? We like to keep it light, and then we get dark. We go pitch black, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> uh, you know, that's it's that's sort of similar. I think I think that's uh, there's definitely it is a movie. It feels darker than the first Expendables. It's funnier, but it's also darker. Yeah. Um, I mean, for a movie called The Expendables, I mean, that's interesting because, like, clearly they take it very hard when one of them dies, and their 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 feelings towards each other are anything but expendable, right? They have this great uh, friendship and and comradeship, and it's not like they're they're purely business like and 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 detached from right. each other. No, the title is meant to be ironic, right? It is the same. Is like, it? The, the, the entertainment know. industry, uh, sort of the the broader cultural discourse, may see these old, worn out action stars as expendable right you know over but, the hill but yeah. they are totally are not because look at them come back here and kick a bunch of ass together i mean i'm gonna have to disagree i think that the first t- the title pertains to the first movie in which they do kind of feel expendable and in fact where the, a lot of the movie is around treason right within their group and betrayal right and the fact that their bonds don't really mean that much anymore right and like they kind of feel like society has left them behind to an extent or that their lives don't matter right i think one of the big themes in the expendables franchise about both movies is that these are guys who have faced death constantly for decades and are now facing death like for reals even if they don't get shot by any of the numbers of thousands and thousands of bullets whizzing around their heads at any given time like they will die right 
So, uh, and maybe that's why it's so violent, right? Is because you know they're they're kind of confronting their mortality and their their own loss. But I, I do think that it fits this movie less well, and I, I I'm not sure that this movie makes an effort to try to live up to the title of the Expendables. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I don't know. I don't know whether I think it just takes the name from the first movie, which was much more about what that first movie was about, which was like Sylvester Stallone kind of like wistfully flying a C one thirty to Mississippi Queen, right, and kind of amusing, you know, sort of musing back on the days when this was really fun. Whereas now they're yeah. still having fun, right? They're they're still doing it, right? They they just um, and the classic rock is as ubiquitous as ever. Oh, even more so. Like, there's even yeah. like, and it's also a more self conscious choice. I think even more self conscious choice. He's yeah, not just playing music he really like, likes. Middle, you know, nowhere in Russia, and the soundtrack is like very like you know, nineteen seventies, good time, good time rock and roll, or even sixties with these blues as well. Oh, yeah. So while we're on the topic of the music selections of this movie, we have to point out that the music that's playing uh, as the movie ends and as the credits start to roll is, I just want to celebrate another day of living. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right? How great right? is that? Isn't that awesome? See, I, I, that definitely is like, you know, reaching, you know, reaching a point where you realize your days are numbered and, and being grateful for the opportunity that you have to keep doing your work and doing what you love and kind of being what you love to be, right? Like, and that's kind of one of the things that this movie presents a little bit of, um, or a lot, or he been helping. You know what I mean? But I, I mean, like, on one hand, you're making it seem like this movie is about sort of gracefully acknowledging sort of growing old and mortality. But on the other hand, I mean, Sylvester Stallone, is, uh, the, the most sobering fact about him is that he is basically the same age as John Lithgow, his, his co-star from uh, Cliffhanger, <laughs> who seems like he's about 20 years older. <laughs> you know, so, like, Sylvester Stallone is not somebody who is known for, like, acknowledging the fact that, like, they're going old, growing old and, like, fading away and, like, they're not what they want were. Sylvester Stallone is like trying to do the same movies he was doing 30 years ago. I don't know. I mean, did you see Rocky Balboa? I feel like Rocky Balboa was kind of a change. I didn't see the new Rambo. But, but it was a Rocky movie. Like, yes, on the one hand, you're right that Rocky Balboa is about, like, Rocky coming to terms with the fact that, like, is he old enough to do what he used to do? That Adrian has died, he's alone. On the other hand, Rocky Balboa is the sixth sequel to Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like... You know, he's not particularly trying to – I mean he tried to move out with Copland, right, in the 90s. And you could just be like, look, he's like a working actor, overthinking and loves actors that work. If he had – if there was a market for Sylvester Stallone doing sort of like artsy indie films, maybe he'd be taking that route up. But the fact is that like people will pay for him to do another Rocky movie, another Rambo movie, you know, a sort of like a tongue-in-cheek action movie. And, you know, who are we to turn up our nose at the fact that like – there's there's a market for Expendables, and Expendables Two is the number one movie in America right now. Not by a lot. It didn't make a lot. It made less than the Expendables One. But the fact is, like you know, it succeeded financially. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, yeah, it's like on the one hand, there does seem to be some sort of like you know gallows humor in the fact that like they're all doing this, and there's sort of like a feeling like isn't it ridiculous we're all still doing this? But on the other hand, there's something a little bit embarrassing about the fact that they're all still doing it. I think so. It's a little bit hipsterish. Like it definitely it reminds me, <laughs> wow. it, it reminds me of, of an improv scene that uh, Overthinker Sheely did a, a couple weeks ago, where he was criticizing a guy for like his sort of insufficient, like his sort of like eating factory farm food and like wearing clothes that were made in sweatshops. And the guy's like says to him, "But you do all the same things." And he says, "But I think about it all the time." <laughs> right? like, like Sylvester Stone, you you're too old to do these action movies. 
but I think about it all the time. How old I am, right? Like, so he reflects on it. I mean, did you you saw the trailer for Bullet to the Head in which he fights Cal Drago, right? Jason Momoa, right? Who is gosh? Um, did you guys not have that trailer in the New York showing? No, although I, I'm going to go online and watch it immediately. Yeah, he's I, I'm Jason. How Momoa, does it look? Uh, does it look terrible? It looks it looks disposable. Like it looks like a straight down the middle action. Expendable. Movie. <laughs> it, looks, it, it, it looks like the sort of movie that would be direct to video were it, even with Sylvester Stallone in it, were it not coming right on the heels of Expendables too. Yeah, I mean it stars him, Jason Momoa, the star of the Latter Day Conan the Barbarian movie, Christian yeah, Slater. Oh. Uh, and uh, what whoever Sarah Shahi is, who is sort of the like younger Eva Mendez, like cheaper than Eva Mendez alternative that they managed to purchase, and Adewale Anaguye Agbaje, who I believe uh, whose name I cannot pronounce, which is unfortunate, um, uh, who played Adebisi on Oz and was on Lost. That guy. Oh wow! So, they got a little hat. Yeah, they got a little hat from. <laughs> <laughs> so I have I have a question. And this is going to be – this might be kind of obscure. It might not go anywhere, but – and it may turn into a post later if I get the chance to. So has anyone seen the 1978 movie The Wild Geese? It's not Fly Away Home, right? No. no. Okay, so I'm going to keep going. <laughs> so The Wild Geese is a 1978 movie starring Richard Burton, Roger Moore uh, – sorry, Sir Richard Burton, Sir Roger Moore, and wow. Sir Richard Harris as mercenaries. Now, keep in mind, in 1978, all of these gentlemen were, like, in their mid to late 50s, possibly 60s even. So these, these guys were getting up in years. They, I, don't know, I don't know if they were quite expendables age, but at least comparable. And they're playing mercenaries who are he, – here's the, here's the plot summary as described on IMDb, just real briefly. Uh, they're, sent to, they're sent to some Central African country to overthrow a dictator – uh, but the, the corporation that's paying for them double crosses them, so they have to fight their way out of the country halfway through the halfway through the movie. So, in other words, very much the sort of plot you would expect to see in a movie in the Expendables franchise. So, t- taking as read that none of us have seen it, I haven't seen it for one thing, but I'm I'm definitely going to if I can find it on Netflix or through any other means, check it out at some point and maybe do a comparison of the two because it it probably touches on very similar things because these are all these are all aging actors with the exception being that Richard Burton, Roger Moore and Richard Harris all had more se- quote unquote serious careers as actors than mm-hmm. Stallone, Schwarzenegger or Willis did. So for them this was sort of a this was sort of an odd deviation from type for them to play mercenaries in a sort of late seventies action movie. Mm. Yeah, I, I like to think about. I like to use the phrase uh, "Baps number" for movies like that. Like, what's this movie's Baps number? Referring to the film Baps with uh, Academy Award <laughs> winner uh, uh, Martin Landau and right. Academy Award winner Halle Berry, um, Black American Princesses. Yeah. So, but no. So it has a Baps number of like ten. This, uh, this, this <laughs> Expendables, early Expendables, Wild Geese thing. That looks cool. I'd like to see that movie. It's probably got that sort of stilted feel of the older action movies right kind of where they're going to stand around a lot and kind of orate at each other in a less of a pithy way than we yeah. would expect where to. the where the where the shots have a duration of longer than three seconds right 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 gosh <laughs> Jeez. 
Like three seconds. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay, so we should address this before the podcast wraps up, and we're starting around out of time. But what do, you, what do you guys think about the role of women in this movie? I feel like our audience needs us to talk about this a little bit, um, and, and I, w- I want to put that out there. What do you guys think about like what this movie says about gender, uh, the Expendables 2? And, and is it something that is worth talking about, or should we just cut it and wish short round a happy birthday? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it definitely seemed like the one female member of the group was really, like, forced there at gunpoint, no pun intended. <laughs> like, you know, somebody, like, told the screenwriter, like, you need to work a female member to the group. And and they never really they never really came up with a rationale for her existing, uh, a compelling reason for her to – I mean, I guess she's there because she knows how to pack the safe, although she almost screws it up and kills all of them. And then she continues to be there for no reason, even though, like, they fully admit very early on in the movie that, like, we're no longer on the mission. We're no longer trying to recover the object. We're just trying to get revenge. She sticks around with them. Right, 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 right. Well, I think she's, I, I when, she's, when she's introduced, she's introduced as sort of a foreign element, right? Both because she's foreign, right? Like she's, you know, of a different ethnicity, as it were, uh, and because she's a woman. And it's sort, of a, it's sort of a sign of the corporation, again, trying to sort of not, you know, misunderstand, horn in on these people, kind of ruin the way that they work, interfere with what they're doing. That kind of fear that the, the older man has of kind of the institutions moving on as power in the institutions change, right? And kind of like taking away their, their mm. long held hegemony. Um, but then it evolves, right? Like, because she starts asking a bunch of really personal questions early on in the movie, like, which I thought was totally going to be some sort of trick. Right, where she like she really awkwardly and forcibly tries to make friends with Sylvester Stallone, and you're like, like "What is she doing? Like, she's going to betray them at some point, right? Like, because why does she yeah. need this information?" Am I the only one who thought that like her interest in motorcycles is going to pay off at some point? The motorcycle use in the movie peaked like in the first five minutes <laughs> when yeah. they used it to take down a helicopter. <laughs> like, I really thought there would be a scene later where like they need to do some like A team esque mechanics. And and like like Sylvester Stallone and the woman sort of bond over their shared love of like motorcycle repairing, and it becomes like that book, like the Zen of motorcycle repair. <laughs> Zen of motorcycle maintenance. Zen of motorcycle. So did, did anyone else? They always pick up on an odd subtext. I was convinced it was going to be revealed in the in the final reel of the movie that uh, the the female character Yan, uh, played by Yan Nu, I can't even think of what her name in the movie was, was Bruce Willis's daughter or niece or something. Because when Bruce Willis introduces her character, he stresses to an unnatural right. level that, you know, if, if, she, if she gets a hangnail, if one hair on her head, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the, right. in the final scene where, where he's talking and he's trying to, like, pick her up for a ride home, it's like, hey, you know, we're ready to go. And then she shoots a glare. I mean, he's like, oh, OK, well, we'll be over here. We're just going to, like, almost as if to say, well, sorry, honey, don't mean to, you know, nose in on you trying to flirt with the – guy who's eight years older than me <laughs> yeah i know that i think that's very interesting because it, it does sort of seem like there must be more to her character than meets the eye like she must be either much better at combat than you than you would expect at first or like much more in, operationally important or yeah like important to bruce willis i mean it seems like kind of like a half-baked character to me it seemed like an echo of like if you guys remember rambo 2 there's sort of a similar mm. there's a vietnamese woman who is supposed to lead rambo into the pow camp and he's like i don't want to work with any woman and then of course like they sort of bond with each other they're both warriors and they're both sort of like you know they nobody understands that like they're their lonely walk in life but of course in rambo 2 she dies tragically it's sort of then giving him that last push she, of bloodlust he, 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 
She dies tragically literally immediately after declaring her love for him. Like they, <laughs> they have their romantic moment and then she gets up and walks away and, uh, and is shot. Just like, oh, yeah. That's literally how it happens. A quick aside while we're on talking about Rainbow 2. That, that uh, movie is where Mr. Vester Sloan says, I'm expendable. And then uh, the, the, uh, the Asian woman love interest says, you're not expendable. Before, <laughs> that's right. That's, right. That is, but, uh, that's interesting. It does lead some credence to this idea that it's some some odd reference to that. Um, but uh, thinking about uh, Sylvester Stallone's comment earlier earlier on when he's being told that you know that the that a, a woman is being assigned to the crew, basically he's just like no chicks allowed. You know, some some cut, <laughs> some phrase that is just a slight cut above that. Um, you know, the, it. it is that supposed to be some sort of commentary on the uh, on the boys' club nature of this and how he has how he is repudiated? If so, it is a very weak commentary. Um, it doesn't quite fit uh, with the rest of the film. Well, when he says "no girls allowed," you mean not just when he says "no girls allowed," but sort of any sort of arc that he can trace between "no girls allowed" to you know at the end uh, he uh, you know earning respect you know, get him. Uh, coming to respect her and seeing her as a valuable member of the team. I mean, I think at the very end, one of the more inci- one of the bigger insights he says talks about is uh, how he realizes that he is the problem for her, right? And a lot of heroes say this: they're like, "Oh, you know, I have to walk my lonely road. You can't go with me where I'm going," or like, "Oh, I'd just be a bad person for you." And in a lot of those scenes, I don't think it really rings true, and it's just a way of ending the story. But it almost felt to me like Sylvester Stone was acknowledging Sylvester Stallone was acknowledging that his body of work has been detrimental to women in action movies. <laughs> like, you don't want me around. I'm just going to make you my character who gets killed. You need to yeah. make your own. With the exception of Sandra Bullock and Demolition Man. Which is an amazing turn, right? Um, <laughs> right. She really transcends that material. He also plays a relic in that movie, though, who's uncomfortable with the, like, the world that he's yeah. living in. Even Think like about- 20 years ago, he was supposed to be the dad. They're like, he's, for most of his career, he's been sort of apologetic about his role in the ecosystem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, wait, what year is Demolition Man supposed to take place? It's got to, oh, what, what year is the future? It's definitely like 2004. Let me see. <laughs> oh, We're like all restaurants are Taco Bell. <laughs> 2004, in the dark future. No, I'm going to look it up. 2030. Yeah, 2032. It's still going to happen, guys. (laughs) Although 1996 was supposed to be the year where, like, it's sort of the dystopia where, like, L.A. is a war zone. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. There's a lot of things. The world is supposed to end a bunch of times. The Crystallis one was supposed to happen in 1997, right? The end day. Judgment Uh, Day was, what, 1998? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. Gosh, the, the the apocalypse flies by if you don't. Sometimes. Well, we're, we're already we're already eight years past the time cop window, so. Oh, that's right. That's right. The time cop window is closing, and in fact, sadly, we've come to the end of our podcast window, guys. <laughs> I, think, I think our time has run out. Same matter cannot occupy same space, and uh, that's not relevant. But it's from Time Cop, so there you go. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> any, uh, any, 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 any final thoughts on Expendables? I like to do final thoughts from you guys, so that I, uh, I don't leave anything on the table. I don't know. I, I feel like Expendables, like the, the only suitable final thought would be sort of like a like a silence, like a satisfied silence. But it's like, you know, it's it's somewhat resistant to overthinking, right? It's sort of like it gives you what's on the label. 
Yeah, I, I, I made this comment in the in the pre-chatter before we started recording that this is, and I paid twelve dollars for my ticket, so I, I'd say this is a twelve dollar movie. I I don't feel like I was cheated, and I don't feel as if I got anything more than what I paid for it. Like I got exactly trying to overachieve or anything. Right, right, right. I got exactly twelve dollars of entertainment. Yeah, but can I just say that like I'm amazed that, and I've googled this to try to find out. Nobody until this moment in human history has used the word "I now pronounce you man and knife" before (laughs) in an action movie. This is the first action movie. In which somebody dressed as a priest and said, I now pronounce you man a knife and then kill the guy with a knife. <laughs> Probably because a lot of movies rarely go for the murder in a church level. Yeah. Uh, you know what? A surprising number of movies. Yeah. Go- I, 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 I can I, rattle I, off a bunch right now. Killer with John Woo. Pretty much anything yeah. with vampires. John Carpenter's vampires. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico has a good one. <laughs> Let me get one last thought in here, um, which – uh, I don't mean to, to rain on the parade or be a wet towel or any other sort of metaphorical uh, dampening of fun, uh, but you know we, we all clearly enjoyed the movie. Uh, you know I think we all will all stand by uh, our assessment of it and, uh, and our enjoyment of it. Um, but I, I'm going to challenge all of us to come back to this in a week from now and just see if we feel the same way um, about the fact that like we're okay with like you know it, this movie. Uh, you know, not aspiring to anything more than what it says on the on the tin for being so dependent on on reference to other movies um, and for you know it, it, it's gaping plot holes and you know, odd relationship with, uh, with with gender politics and those sort of sorts of things. Um, you know, like there's a, there's a there's a part of me that's wondering like, well, you know, it's great that this movie exists, but um, you know, we we are setting the the bar for it, you know, not exactly high. For it, so uh, maybe that's our fault for not that's fault is not the right word, but I, it's just something to think about, and maybe we'll come back to it. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll for jump firmly into the minority and say that I don't think that this movie is quite so cheap, and that it has a lot going on. But I'm not going to get into it now because we just talked about it for an hour. But we will continue <laughs> our conversation, uh, and this conti- conversation will continue on the forums. It'll con- continue on the show notes. Post the show notes if you saw Expendables two. If you didn't, what do you think? What do you what do you think about the uh, aging movie stars, the the oeuvre of these great Titanic men of roids and facial uh, plastic surgical manipulation? Uh, <laughs> What do you think about the future of action movies? Can they have a new generation, or will it be uh, murdered via roundhouse knife kick into the chest? The most important thing you, you can email us. You can call us at the number that you never call us on, uh, and I don't have it written down, so I'm not going to say it. <laughs> so if you listen to the podcast, any of the other podcasts, you'll hear me say the number. But most importantly, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the website where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't scissor. John Rappo, what mean expendable? <laughs> it's, it's like someone invites you to a party and you don't show up, so you get like a bunch of your friends who were working at the same time you were, and you go to Bulgaria and you have a party in Bulgaria, and then some. <laughs> And so other friends show up for like five days and they say like three lines, they shoot a machine gun and then you kick some <laughs> guy with a knife. <laughs> okay, come on. Okay. Happy birthday <laughs> to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you.
Happy birthday, birthday dear, dear Short Round. Unborn, Kate, we've Happy birthday to you. He now, played a character on- called Data before there was a character called Data in Star Trek The Next Generation in the Goonies. And there's not a lot of people who can say that. No. 